You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 13th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, we begin in Kyiv, talking to a member of parliament there about the latest developments. Then, as Iran publicly executes another protester, Washington says Tehran is now Russia's top military backer. Plus... The World Cup in Qatar is a proof, actually, of how sports diplomacy can achieve a historical transformation of a country, with reforms that inspired the Arab world. Inspirational it may be, but there is the whiff of graft. The EU vice president and three others have been arrested for corruption involving a Gulf state. We'll get the download from Brussels. With a roundup of the day's papers and a snapshot of a photography project from the UN headquarters in New York. This isn't a contest to just take pictures of nature. It's really people in human rights circumstances. So we're really looking to tell their story. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The founder of the collapsed cryptocurrency FTX has been arrested in the Bahamas. A Hong Kong court has postponed a landmark national security trial against the media tycoon and China critic Jimmy Lai. And the eldest star of BTS has become the first member of the K-pop group to start mandatory military service. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now... We begin with the latest from Ukraine. I'm joined down the line from Kyiv by the Ukrainian MP, Lesio Vasilenko. Lesio, thank you very much for joining us here on Monocle 24. Could you give us a snapshot of the last 24 hours there, please? Um, well, uh, the, uh, the last snapshot is very different if you take the whole of Ukraine. If uh, you look down the east, uh, uh, there has been uh, severe shelling on the, in the direction of uh, Donetsk uh, and in the Luhansk region. In fact, if you go down south, uh, Kherson region, um, there has been a pulling back of Russian forces. On the contrary, um, Odessa has been in basically a blackout uh, for days now with light uh, and electricity getting restored uh, on an hourly basis, but still not all the regions reconnected. And uh, Kiev, um, there's... Um, um, there's a regular blackouts, I would say, by now, uh, which means that electricity power is getting switched off uh, because the capacities are simply not there to provide uh, all of the people with the necessary energy resources. Lesia, you founded the Legal 100. That's a human rights non-governmental organisation that provides assistance to, to servicemen and veterans. I wonder what prompted that and if it's still in operation? 
the organization works uh, works intact and has more work than ever these days. Uh, this is a project of which I am particularly proud of in my life. I have founded it in the summer of uh, 2014 as uh, a purely volunteer-based project, and then it grew into uh, non-governmental organizations, which is uh, one of the bigger non-governmental organizations uh, dealing with uh, veteran rights and the rights of the military. And uh, although I'm a member of parliament these days, uh, the the team has stayed intact and uh, the organization is completely autonomous with the hotline of the NGO uh, catering to the needs and to the requests and asks of uh, hundreds of callers a day who are mainly either soldiers calling in from military units, family members of uh, wounded soldiers or the wounded soldiers themselves or uh, families of uh, those who, who have lost their lives in battle. And what help is available to those who've fought for the country? Uh, well, there is a whole system of benefits uh, available to veterans and also to wounded soldiers. Uh, and there's also whole packages of uh, social care, if you like, for those who are serving their country. Uh, however, uh, when you uh, are drafted in or when you are, when you sign up for, for military service, uh, that's not really on your mind. So you don't really know uh, that side of social rights of yours. Um, and this is what uh, what we do. We explain to the men and women who, who are serving Ukraine, uh, who are defending Ukraine, what the state in return can do for them. I know that you're a mother and you're very concerned with the treatment of children in Ukraine. How are doctors helping to stop forced deportations of kids to Russia? Uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful uh, story, and it's more than a story. It's a whole initiative that is run by many doctors, sort of in these underground networks across Ukraine. So, what they're doing in the areas which are um, uh, of suddenly be- becoming occupied by Russian forces is that they are writing out um, these diagnoses for the, for the children, saying that they are unfit for travel, that they have severe health conditions that essentially they are completely disabled uh, when, when these kids could, could be absolutely totally fine. But essentially what, what this paperwork does, it saves so many children, so many families from being separated, so many children from being abducted and deported into Russian territory because, uh, well, the Russians, like the Nazi Germans, they don't want sick children, they don't want disabled children. And... Um, they, they don't want to have all the hassle and the expenses of transporting a child who is uh, unable otherwise to travel. So it's really, which also proves that for the Russians, these deportations really are deportations and really are conversions of uh, uh, Ukrainian youth of the Ukrainian future into Russian elements, uh, rather than uh, saving operations and rescue operations of, of young children. And for the kids who are uh, are able to stay, how is the war impacting education? The power cuts are what has really taken a toll on uh, the education. I'm not even talking about the level of education. I'm just talking about the access to education. Uh, COVID, the two years of lockdowns during COVID has given Ukraine and the world, in fact, uh, uh, 
access to rather good online uh, resources and online educations. The teachers have adapted. The teachers knew how to use all these platforms. But the thing is, there's not much online you can do when you have no electricity. So uh, we have, uh, of course, teachers are as creative as doctors. So we have teachers go into these resilience points that have been built uh, in bigger towns, which are essentially just tents where with powerful generators where you can charge your phone, where you can have internet, where you can have heating. So you will find teachers and lecturers at universities just sitting there and doing their job. Uh, or they can go into police stations or uh, medical facilities, any kind of facilities which have electricity just to uh, just to carry on with the syllabus, just to carry on um, giving education to the kids. But the thing is, uh, that's one thing for the teachers and the teachers can, can find their way out. But you're, you're not going to find uh, students in the middle of winter, especially if we're talking about smaller towns and villages um, and uh, regular air raids finding their way into uh, into facilities to to get internet and to connect to online lessons and uh, another factor which has also impacted education it's not just the fact that you can't get offline education but the factor is that uh, a large number of teachers have actually left the country uh, seeking safety or have been displaced inside Ukraine uh, and uh, and have had to readapt to find alternative jobs to support themselves to support their families and this is uh, this is a tragedy really because this tragedy will have consequences not immediately because immediately the task of so many Ukrainians and Ukrainian families is to uh, simply survive physically survive but uh, in the future and generations to come we will have a loss of level of literacy we will have as a nation a lower level of education of uh, those who are children now, those who are uh, studying universities, colleges now. And this will, of course, impact the development of a nation. And I just want to remind everyone that uh, Ukraine uh, has always had one of the higher literacy number uh, numbers among uh, European children. Uh, yesterday, European Union foreign ministers agreed to put another €2 billion Euros into a fund that's been used to pay for military support for Ukraine. Do you know what that will be used for and is it enough? Uh, nothing is enough until Russia is still able to hit Ukraine with missiles, with Iranian drones and with artillery. So uh, Ukraine needs much more than just a fund because that fund, um, it, although it's very good and very much necessary and it's being used for all kinds of things, so that it, it's structured in a way that uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian military can buy uh, military equipment with it, can buy um, ammunition, can, can buy certain types of weapons with it, but only certain types. What Ukraine really needs to be there on the battlefield is tanks, uh, German tanks in particularly. Um, uh, and uh, this is what can give us a military advantage where uh, the battle is being fought on the ground, like the Donetsk and the Luhansk region. Uh, we also need fighter jets. We need our air defense to be um, much stronger, and we need those jets up there shooting down the Russian drones and the Russian missiles, because at the moment, 30% of Ukrainian territory, of Ukrainian ground territory, remains vulnerable to Russian attacks. That means that the innocent, the women, the children, uh, the, the unarmed men in those territories are uh, 
on a daily basis being uh, uh, targeted and being victim, found themselves as victims of Russian air raids. Uh, Lesia, you've previously said that you thought the conflict in Ukraine was the beginning of World War Three. Do you still believe this? Well, the world is in World War Three. We have uh, uh, the whole internet, well, almost the whole international community united behind Ukraine, who is fighting this ex- existential battle between good and evil. And it's in everyone's interest, in the world's interest, uh, that good wins. So this is uh, World War Three. Also, if you look at the geography, um, have a look who's supporting Ukraine, especially in the uh, in the Oriental. So we have Japan, we have South Korea, we have a whole line of countries who are suddenly siding with Ukraine and taking an interest in what what is going on in our side of the globe. That also means that they are concerned with their own defense and security and raising that because they know if Russia is allowed to win, the next one who's uh, who's going to be emboldened, the next autocratic regime which is going to be emboldened is going to be that of China. So I think this has stirred a lot of processes, global processes, uh, with not just concerns but actions uh, to make sure that in this existential battle, good wins. Speaking of Korea, do you think that that looking forward to to the end of this war and the reluctance of Russia and Putin to to cede victory in any way, could it perhaps end as it did on the Korean peninsula with an armistice and and no declaration of, of victory? I really don't see that happening because uh Russia is is a much bigger power with much bigger ambitions it's it's an empire essentially we're talking about uh an empire still existing in the 21st century and Russia's imperialistic goals uh they are very clear they don't want to have a Ukrainian Ukraine and after Ukrainian Ukraine is erased uh they will go after other countries where they believe uh the the rights of the Russian speaking people are being uh trumped so um there's never going to be an end to it unless Russia is pushed back, unless Ukraine's territorial integrity is restored, and unless eventually all those guilty of war crimes, crimes against humanity, the crime of aggression, are brought to justice. Justice here, it's not about just the principle and the, the value uh, of uh, of justice. It's about uh guaranteeing non-repetition. Guaranteeing non-repetition can only be done in so many ways by ending the wrongful acts. So basically by deoccupying Ukrainian territories, by getting Russia's military out, and uh, by making sure that uh, reparations are paid and that for generations the Russian nation will understand that wrong has been done. Lesia, thank you very much indeed. That was Lesia Vasilenko there, speaking to us from Kiev. It's 15.15 in Hong Kong, 7.15 here in London. A second man has now been executed in Iran for his involvement in the country's ongoing protests. The man was convicted of killing two members of the security forces and was publicly executed by being hung from a crane. 
I'm joined now by Dr. Talha Abdul Razak, an expert on Middle Eastern politics and security issues with a special focus on Iraq and Iran. Uh, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. Do we know if this executed man had a fair trial? I think it's uh, pretty safe to say that if you arrest a man, uh, put him on trial, investigate the uh, alleged crime, put him on trial, and then execute him all within the space of 23 days, then you definitively have not given that man a fair trial. Um, you know, and, and the method by which he was executed was, you know, a show of state force and violence to cow the Iranian population and make sure that they uh, they know who's boss. Mm. You know, you, you, you have someone who's uh, have his neck stretched basically on a crane in public. And, you know, and I hate to use such terms, but, you know, your listeners need to be aware of exactly what it is that the Iranian regime is hoping to achieve here. It's fear and terror amongst its own population. Has it worked? Um, to an extent, I think it will. But over time, I mean, uh, unfortunately, for these things to take effect, uh, the uh, as in the, the protest movement, things have to become revolutionary in nature because the Iranian regime has spent decades since 1979, um, carrying out a lot of you know, abuses, human rights violations, oppression against its own people, um, and for a variety of reasons. So this goes actually beyond the whole women's rights debate. It actually goes also into the debate about minorities, such as Kurdish minority rights, Arab minority rights, the, the rights of the Baluch in the southeast. Um, many of these populations have been oppressed historically. Even and, before um, 1979? Even before 1979, but particularly so after. I mean, you know, people all like to um, frame the Iranian revolution as an Islamic revolution in 1979, um, where the whole idea being that because it's based on Islam, then it's color blind, it's ethnicity blind, it's race blind. But that turned out not to be true. There are strong elements of Persian nationalism within the Iranian regime. Mm. Continued specifically target the you know various minorities that they uh, they they govern over, and therefore we find that there's been this consistent atmosphere and environment of fear and intimidation that has been rampant and ongoing for decades. Uh, this was the second person to be executed. Uh, what do we know about the first, and and do we expect many more to come? Well, I think what the Iranian government is trying to show is just how fast its uh, judiciary can move. Um, again, this is a terror tactic. They're trying to show people that if you attend these protests, if you go a step too far, and bear in mind that the Iranian regime is a theocratic regime, the charges that they are leveling against these uh, protesters is one of muharaba. Muharaba translates to basically uh, committing war against God himself. So they see themselves as a divinely decreed state and government and therefore, if you stand against them, you are waging war against God and must be killed. And that is why they are trying to justify saying, look, we're, we're going to move as fast as possible to not only arrest these people, but to put them on trial and execute them in record time, almost dizzying time, to ensure that people um, are, are cowed and go back to their homes and accept the status quo as it is. Mm. Whether that will work in the long term is debatable. But I think, unfortunately, because these um, protests haven't reached what's known as a critical mass in terms of movement. 
then they may find some success in using these terror tactics. Now, of course, this has been hugely condemned by international human rights groups and world leaders. Can any further sanctions or punitive measures be brought against Iran? They can be brought against Iran, and indeed they have done already. I mean, the EU has passed a a raft of um, uh, sanctions, uh, the United Kingdom as well, but also related to its uh, arms transfers to Russia, which is a separate issue. Um, and the US and Australia and Canada as well. So, you know, they can absolutely pass more sanctions. The issue is, though, just how effective will they be? Because mm. Iran has been under almost constant sanctions since the uh, revolution. So decades of sanctions have not really managed to change its behavior. So what needs to be done is probably a more concerted effort on the part of these global powers to support the Iranian people themselves um, to fight back for their own Uh, autonomy and their own freedom. And that means actually, for example, uh, providing educational opportunities for Iranians, uh, providing them with political support. Um, And this all comes as part of a package. It can't just be sanctions. Mm. You know, the the, the people have to be able to empower themselves to act against the regime. And unfortunately, there is no way to dislodge a regime like this without blood being spilled. You know, uh, innocent blood will be spilled. Unfortunately, that's just the way things are when it comes to revolutionary change. Let's just pick up on what you were talking about in terms of uh, Russia and uh, and military hardware. The US says Iran is now the top military backer of, of Russia. Is this just about drones or it goes beyond this? Well, according to the reports that I've read, um, and, it, and it's, again, it's not just the United States, this is uh, the United Kingdom and, and, and uh, the EU, and a bunch of other, um, you know, it's the international community as, as a whole, apart from uh, several outliers, notably authoritarian regimes such as China. Um, so the reports are showing that because Russian stocks have been or have, have dwindled so low due to the war in Ukraine, they're having to rely on lower tech, cheaper options that come from Iran. So Iran specializes in a few uh, drone technology is known as loitering munitions, specifically the Shahid 131s and the 136s. And both of those drones, interestingly, have Russian military designations. So what that shows you is that there's been an, a, you know, a military adoption on, on the part of Russians of this Iranian technology. There were also reports that the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps was deployed uh, to Crimea to, cha- to train Russian personnel on the use of these drones. And essentially what they do is they fire them in swarms to overwhelm air defense systems. So while a lot of them have been shot down, enough have gotten through to cause significant damage. That's concerning in and of itself. But then when we add to it the fact that there are reports that the Iranians may then be supplying uh, you know, uh, ballistic missiles to the Russians to help them bombard Ukrainian cities, things become even worse, because if we're looking at these drones, they can carry a warhead, uh, especially the Shahed 131s. The warhead is about 15 kilograms. These ballistic missiles can carry payloads which are much larger. And given that the Russians are targeting Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, including, you know, uh, power and water supplies, that means that there could be a lot more infrastructure damage in the war going forward. Mm. What does Iran get from Russia? Well, diplomatically, Russia still wields a lot of power. Um, you know, it, it still views itself as a great power in many ways. It still is. Um, it may not be the Russian Empire that it once was. It may not even be uh, as powerful as the Soviet Union once was. 
but it certainly is still powerful. It's all the seats on the UN Security Council, um, it, and that benefits Iran directly because if there's, uh, for example, any UN resolutions that will be passed, Russia could effectively veto anything which is, uh, you know, seen contrary to Iranian interests. Now, obviously, that will come as part of a package, you know, kind of you scratch my back, I scratch yours kind of thing. It's not necessarily because they are ideologically committed to one another. And I think it's key to stress that the Russians and Iranians have a relationship of uh, of convenience, a marriage of convenience, whereby they mutually benefit each other in certain areas. Um, and particularly in terms of facing off against what, who they see as the global uh, hegemon, who is the United States. And they want to kind of break down that global U.S.-led order of which the United Kingdom is a part of. And if they manage to succeed on the sidelines and looming on the horizon in terms of uh, the threat picture, you have China. If Ukraine goes down, it will be Taiwan next. Yes. Dr. Tala Abdulraza, thank you. Still to come on the programme, we head to a photography competition at the UN headquarters in New York. This isn't a contest to just take pictures of nature. It's really people in human rights circumstances. So we're really looking to tell their story. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. European Parliament Vice President Eva Kaili is one of six people who've been arrested and charged in an anti-corruption investigation involving members of the European Parliament and a Gulf state, widely assumed to be Qatar. It's a scandal that's shaken Brussels to the core and there are calls for a parliamentary inquiry. Well, Suzanne Lynch is the chief Brussels correspondent for Politico and joins me now on the line. Uh, Suzanne, what's the background to this? Yeah, we've now heard from Belgian prosecutors that this investigation has actually been ongoing for four months. But it was on Friday evening here in Brussels that this story broke. Belgian police uh, did raids across the city, mainly in private residences, but also in the European Parliament itself. Um, They arrested people, four remain now in custody and are expected to appear in court on Wednesday. And this includes uh, the Greek MEP, uh, Eva Kaili. Uh, So uh, uh, beyond her, who is accused of what? Well, the issue here is money. Um, The Belgian authorities have reported that they have found hundreds of thousands of euros uh, in cash at three locations in a uh, a private residence, in a suitcase, in a hotel, in a Brussels hotel uh, room, and also in an apartment, a flat owned by an MEP. So that's what we know. It's at least 750,000 euro. Uh, so that is what is setting this case apart from any other uh, inquiry or probe about influence. The issue now is lobbying happens. It happens in places like the European Union and it happens in a lot of national capitals. But what's making this and elevating this into a criminal investigation is this actual accusation of bribery uh, and undue influence by a foreign power uh, trying to influence decision making in the European Parliament. Mm. And as well as the arrest, there have also been several resignations. Yes, um, a lot of resignations from the European Parliament. Kylie herself 
um, was a very prominent MEP. There are over 700 members of the European Parliament here, uh, but she was very well known. She was one of 14 uh, European Parliament vice presidents, and she also had a senior uh, role in her own political group in the Parliament, the centre-left social and democratic groups. So um, she uh, has been removed, essentially, uh, from the SND. Uh, there have also been other uh, resignations. Now, we don't know on what basis these resignations were made. What we do know is that uh, the offices of some parliamentary assistants, not MEPs, but parliamentary assistants, were raided. And this happened on Monday afternoon. We had more searches for um, in offices in the European Parliament. We're told that 10 parliamentary assistants, it looked like their IT equipment was seized in some way um, and that that was there returning to investigation. What's the buzz in Brussels around this? I mean, it's a huge story. Um, I think people are very shocked, particularly that this MEP is so prominent. She's very well known. She's very out in the media and, and kind of a, at a lot of events in Brussels. So the uh, audacity of this, uh, if it is proven, and these allegations even at this stage, you know, money in suitcases, uh, Qatari influence, are really shocking people. And I think it's really shed a light on the need for a much more robust transparency system, transparency register uh, in the EU. The European Union does have a kind of a piecemeal approach to self-regulation. It's got different bodies, the EU Ombudsman, the European Court of Auditors. But they have very few powers of enforcement and different institutions have different systems. Now what they're calling for is a kind of a pan-European system uh, to try and uh, to try and just get this problem under, co- under control at an earlier stage. The very fact that this was allowed to take place without any you know, deference that somebody felt they were able to get involved in this kind of a, of a plot it has shocked people. Oh, absolutely. Suzanne, thank you. Suzanne Lynch there. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The founder of the collapsed cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, has been arrested in the Bahamas. Sam Bankman-Fried faces extradition to the United States. Last month, FTX filed for bankruptcy in America, leaving many users unable to withdraw their funds. A Hong Kong court has postponed a landmark national security trial against media tycoon and China critic Jimmy Lai. It's been pushed to November next year as the court awaits Beijing's decision on whether a foreign lawyer can defend him. He's currently serving a jail term of more than five years in a separate fraud case. And the eldest star of BTS has become the first member of the K-pop group to start mandatory military service in South Korea. 30-year-old Jin has begun five weeks training at a boot camp near the North Korean border. Fans have been told to stay away from the site. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. China has dropped many COVID restrictions and yesterday the government deactivated a phone app that's been tracking citizens' movements for the last three years. Well, joining me is Steve Tsang. Steve, can you tell us more about this communications itinerary card app? Well, that is a national app which applies everywhere in China until now. So it enabled the government to track and trace everybody uh, and where, where, where they have been and it was something that was in some ways very restrictive. If people travel between cities or provinces, they have to use the app to show that they are a negative. And so dropping it sounds like a big move, but I understand that local apps will still be in use. So just how significant is this? Well, it is significant in the, in the, in the sense that the app is now effectively obsolete. 
because the uh, restrictions for travel uh, between cities and provinces have been lifted already. So there's really no reasons to keep the apps in terms of a COVID fighting uh, instrument. Uh, the only other reasons to keep it will be simply to monitor people and uh, making China into a surveillance state. So for, from, from people's perspective in China, it is a step forward. Mm. What are the other major policy U-turns on the zero COVID strategy? Well, the reality is that the zero COVID policy is now nearly a zero COVID in name only, not entirely, because there are still restrictions uh, for access to certain premises. But most of the restrictions inside China are being lifted or in the process of being lifted. What have not been lifted is travel outside of China or for foreigners to go to China. But even there, some of the uh, periods of quarantines have also been reduced. So the changes are quite significant from, say, two weeks ago. Mm. Now, we know that the health system has been queried, people wondering if it can cope. How is it looking? Um, The... Health service is clearly under stress, but then with all the with a lot of the testing that used to be applied very in very general and widespread scale having been ended, the Chinese government is no longer able to know the actual number of cases of people being tested positive. So yes, the health service is being stressed, but we haven't got to a stage of the health service completely failing. Or breaking down. Mm. Is there still vaccine hesitancy? There is still vaccine hesitancy, um, but there are also people who had previously refused to re- to take any vaccination at all, now beginning to go out and get some vaccines. But we don't have systematic data in terms of how much change that has happened. It is entirely anecdotal. There's some people who refuse are now going out Mm. because now they know the game has been changed. They can't just rely on the government to protect them. And we understand, though, that some businesses are closed and streets are largely empty. Is this this the case of of people choosing to self-isolate? I think it's a uh, choice of people not only to self-isolate for those who are getting infected, but for people to avoid going out in order to minimise the risk of getting infected. Again, and anecdotally, uh, in big cities like Beijing or Shanghai, the people are saying that a lot of their friends or contacts or colleagues are getting COVID. So people are aware that it is spreading fast. And is there a shortage of medication? Well, um, we know that there's a shortage of uh, items like ibuprofen or paracetamol. Um, and the, the chances that there will be other shortages that can be coming up because people are getting a bit worried. So people are attempting to stockpile. And that is the sort of things that usually cause shortage, even when there is, in fact, no real shortage. Mm. And, and finally, Steve, how is this affecting the Chinese economy? Well, at the moment, the Chinese economy is uh, recovering from the lifting of the restrictions. The real issue moving forward is whether the increase in infections will impose other uh, problems for the economy to continue to sustain its recovery. Now that we don't know because we don't know the scale of the uh, infections and we don't know 
at this stage, how many of those end up requiring hospitalization and in death. And the likelihood is that government statistics will no longer be able to tell us what the reality on the ground is. Steve, thank you very much indeed. That was Steve Tsang, and this is The Globalist. And let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me unusually in the studio, normally in far-flung places, is the journalist Ruth Michelson. Welcome, Ruth. Hi, in the flesh. Absolutely <laughs> in the flesh. How lovely to have you here. Um, let's talk about uh, Vladimir Putin, because this is a big story in that he won't host his annual end-of-year press conference. Uh, tell us more. Yeah, this is the fact that Putin's spokesman said that there will be no annual press conference this year um, and the reception around uh, people who normally watch the Kremlin is that um, this is probably attributable to a reluctance on his part to answer questions on the war in Ukraine. Um, so the New York Times, for example, um, saying that, you know, Putin's spokesman said that uh, he regularly speaks to the press, including on foreign visits, but those exchanges are limited to the pool of reporters that are regularly assigned to the Kremlin. So this is the one time in the year where um, a whole variety of people try and even in some cases wear costumes, apparently, to try and catch Putin's eye. Um, and, you know, it gives it's an opportunity, the New York Times points out, for Putin to answer questions about casualties, uh, conscriptions, specific battlefield setbacks in Ukraine, or just to answer questions about why things are going badly. And for the first time in many, many years, he's decided not to do that. Mm, very interesting. Let's move on to Turkey uh, and uh, this sabre rattling at Greece. Uh, t- tell us more. This is a story from Politico. Yes, more classic Erdogan sabre rattling here, where essentially in a speech um, bringing up Turkey's recent ballistic missile test of a uh, domestically made missile, um, which he said uh, when they did the test and also on Sunday, um, just decided to remind the Greeks that the this uh, ballistic missile has the power to hit Athens. Um, and also uh, Politico citing another notable Erdogan quote talking about Greece, which he has repeated, unfortunately, many times, where he, where he said, we can come suddenly one night when the time comes. Um, so it, it, it is classic sort of Erdogan reminding the Greece in his eye, reminding the Greeks, sorry, in his eyes, who has the upper hand that he can, you know, try and scare them and things like this. And of course, it gets a lot of coverage, both in the Turkish media and in the Greek media media, um, which you can understand why, really. Yeah. I mean, do you think that this is a very serious situation? Could it head to open warfare? Well, this is always the question. And what we've seen so far is that there is a very heated war of words between Erdogan and the um, Greek Prime Minister Mitsutakis, who Erdogan also had a choice statement about him where he said that he no longer exists for him in a sort of, you know, 15-year-old girl move. You're dead to me. Yes, exactly. But when were they alive to each other? But okay. (laughs) Um, But this is, we've seen this sort of, this war of words play out, but these are two NATO countries that actually do cooperate sometimes in terms of, um, you know, military cooperation within NATO as much as Erdogan is complaining about what 
Turkey sees as the militarization of the Aegean islands, which are next to Turkey. But I mean, in terms of actual substantial things that will, will happen here, yes, there is a ballistic missile test. But at the same time, there's also cooperation and the, the war of words, the heated exchanges that happened, the attempts to scare um, Greece normally on the part of Turkey, that obviously makes the headlines much more easily and that's how Erdogan likes it. Mm, and of course, uh, elections, domestic audience, all the rest of it. Absolutely, yes. Play, play the tape back, exactly. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Sam Bankman-Fried. Now, he is the crypto founder of uh, FTX or whatever it's called. He's been arrested in the Bahamas. Yes, making the front page of both the Washington Post and the New York Times this morning, understandably. He has been arrested, uh, according to the Washington Post, without incident. So he went willingly from his palatial home in the Bahamas um, yesterday. He's due to appear in court today. Um, He was also due to appear today before Congress to give a statement about uh, the bankruptcy of XTX and what happened to people's savings. Um, Pretty choice statement here from the Congresswoman Maxine Waters, um, who chairs the committee that Bankman-Fried was supposed to appear on, um, who said, you know, although he must be held accountable, the American public deserves to hear from him directly about, you know, his harmful actions. It was pretty interesting after we've seen him speaking publicly at, you know, New York Times conferences and things like that over the past few weeks. But what they're saying is, no, we want to see him come before Congress and really answer difficult, non-softball questions from anyone about you know, about how this enormous made-off scale failure has happened. Yeah, absolutely. And can he be extradited? Uh, He can, and he almost certainly will. It's just a case of how long it takes. So the New York Times saying, um, you know, Bahamas does have an extradition treaty with the United States, but the process can take weeks and sometimes far longer if a, if a criminal defendant contests it. Um, also adding that there were some lawyers involved in the case who said that they expressed surprise at the suddenness of the arrest, which is a bit strange considering how <laughs> the, the scale of, of the alleged crime and, uh, and, you know, and, and people's losses. Um, but yeah, he's been charged with wire fraud conspiracy, securities fraud, securities fraud conspiracy and money laundering. Let's turn to New Zealand now. I love this story. (laughs) Jacinta Ardern uh, has been caught on a hot mic calling the head of a minor opposition party an arrogant prick. (laughs) Yes, I mean, maybe sometimes we've all been in this situation in life, perhaps, where you have have some thoughts about what someone has said to you. And in her case, the microphone was on. Um, And this was against the leader of the Libertarian Act Party, David Seymour, um, who apparently asked Arden um, if she could give an example of her making a mistake and apologising for it and then fixing it, which ironically then meant she had to apologise for this entire incident, which she apparently did by text. Um, And then he just texted her back and said, it's not the end of the world. Well, generous of him. How extraordinary. But the whole hot mic thing, I mean, we, 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 who can forget um, Gordon Brown and, uh, I mean, what was that? What had that bigoted woman, he said. Um, and, and so many politicians have been caught in that situation. Uh, the rule has got to be never say something near a microphone that you wouldn't want the world to hear. Right. And this was also in the New Zealand Parliament as well, while, you know, it was broadcast live on national TV. So it was a you know, pretty high risk version <laughs> of a hot mic, maybe the highest risk version of a hot mic she could have. Uh, Ruth, thank you very much. I'll hold off from saying what I really think until the mics are How polite. Thank you so much. (laughs) This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. 
UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's time to talk television now with Scott Bryan, TV critic and broadcaster. Good morning to you, Scott. Good morning. Uh, Scott, before we get into this, I just want to say, without any spoilers or anything at all, White Lotus OMG. (laughs) (laughs) It has been a real hit, hasn't it? I think the first series, of course, of the HBO series um, was incredibly popular and critically acclaimed. But this new series seems to have taken it up to another level. And I think it's the fact that it seems to be, I think, viewer-wise, um, ratings-wise, twice as popular as Series 1. And it's um, quite an interesting feat because it's mostly an anthology. So you're sort of wondering whether it would be able to keep up the momentum. But also the theme tune, the opening number, um, has become a bit of a... A, a bit of a bop. I think quite a lot of nightclubs have been playing it on the dance floor. It's been <laughs> I mean, quite a nice twist. The thing is that the, the final episode, I don't know if you saw it, but the final mm. episode is, is absolutely shocking. Um, and uh, what I'm finding interesting about this, and this relates to what we're going to go on to talk about, is the uh, communal viewing aspect of it. We're all talking about it. It's giving us a water cooler moment. Uh, and and The Guardian is asking, is this the end of TV? Broadcasters, broadcasters are preparing for online-only switch. And surely that's one of the things we lose if that happens. We're all watching things at different things at different times. You are completely right. Um, I sometimes find that with the amount of choice that is on offer, viewers actually like the fact that a TV channel chooses a selection of programmes for them. But also, if you look at some of the most successful shows of this year, um, such as The White Lotus, but also Severance on Apple TV+, Plus, that is a streamer. Of course, you have to go out of your way to go and find it. But they've been releasing episodes weekly, and that kind of creates this appointment to view mm. tendency that creates water cooler hits. I think if you have the tendency of just releasing box set viewing, that does accustom some people. It also works for some shows, such as The Crown. But it also can mean that your show can get lost in the ether. And the BBC said in the last week, uh, Director General Tim Davey says that he can see in the next 10 to 15 years the BBC primarily being an online only outlet and that pretty much a lot of their existing broadcast channels so bbc one and two and so forth would be essentially switched off and i'd say that yes of course there are some opportunities online that that, that millions of us are going to be tending to choose the shows that we want in our own time but the chance you could lose something so big as millions of people collectively watching a big show i mean that is quite a big risk because you could have public service broadcasters essentially disappearing if they're not going to be available on TV. Absolutely. Bad Sisters is another one that just had me coming back every single week. Uh, And if I could have streamed the whole lot in one go, I would have done. But actually, I think it was more enjoyable having to wait. 
Oh, yeah, no, totally. And I think it's also the fact that it can be to the streamer's benefit, I think. I think Netflix, if you've been seeing the releases that they've been doing throughout this year, sometimes I think to myself, is this a strategy or is this just something that has just come about because of when shows are ready? Um, if you look at Stranger Things now, they delivered that in two parts. And, of course, there's the Harry and Meghan documentary uh, which is out again this week. I just find it interesting that they did the first three episodes last week and the next three episodes, which are anticipated to be um, sort of more bombshell revelations um, sort of with them kind of targeting specifically um, the relationship between um, the royal and uh, the, royal, the royal family and the British press. I mean, that's been held back until this week. And I think it's kind of they know themselves now, streamers, that if they pace out the distribution of episodes, it can create a lot of people then going to go and watch them. And you only have to look at the ratings. I think 2.4 million people watched Harry and Meghan's the first three episodes. That's about nearly three times more than people in the UK watched the first episode of the new season of The Crown. And I think what is also interesting tied to that is that Netflix viewing figures are now transparent. Essentially, you can now compare uh, how a show is performed on Netflix compared to um, public service broadcasters and their ratings. And more people watched in the UK, at least, Harry and Meghan, them were watching channels such as BBC Two and Channel Four that, that night. So there's certainly a demand for it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's turn to look at ITV now and their new streaming platform. What is this? And is it too little too late? Well, I mean, potentially it could be. I mean, ITVX is what it's called. And many people are saying, what is, does the X mean? Um, I'd say that the X is, in their marketing speak, um, trying to show that they are more than the uh, normal traditional ITV shows that you accustom them to. So, for example, ITV have been known for um, two-hour detective shows, for reality show fare, quite lowbrow, very driven to get the maximum amount of viewers possible. Um, this is them trying to show that they can do upscale art market prestigious tv long-running documentary series and quite thoughtful pieces so they've kind of really tried to double and, and double down on the amount of drama and also i think it's a lot of catch-up for them i think the itv hub has been the butt of jokes for a lot of people for many years for not really working i think this is them trying to cause catch-up but it's also them trying to attract many viewers who wouldn't normally get to itv so there was an interesting piece in the financial times talking about the difficulty of this and this is essentially at coming at a time when itv in their evening viewing the amount of people watching a show in the evening is going down quite quickly so you're sort of wondering whether this is a little bit too little too late them now trying to cause catch up particularly at the case that we're sort of seeing the big streaming bubble potentially not bursting but certainly declining with the amount of uh, new streaming services probably causing a lot of frustration for people and viewers willingly wanting to spend less on streaming services at, at a time of rising costs elsewhere absolutely scott many thanks indeed that was scott Bryan there the tv critic and this is the globalist on monocle 24 <laughs> This weekend, the United Nations marked annual Human Rights Day and kicked off a year of events leading up to the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights next year. The first event at the UN headquarters was the unveiling of the fifth annual winner of a UN-backed global photography competition known as Photography for Humanity. Monocle's Chris Chermack was at the exhibition's opening and spoke with David Clark, the founder of the project. David began by describing what attracted him to the idea. 
Well, what attracted us to the idea was, you know, the basic notion, right, that a picture is worth a thousand words. So we were doing lots of different types of initiatives, but there's something about the beautiful simplicity of a photograph that we thought would be interesting. And also that we could create a global competition that would really encourage amateur and professional photographers alike, because almost everybody is walking around with a camera, right, with their phone. So to empower individual people all over the world to be able to step in and take a human rights photograph, we thought could be profound. Tell me about the process. I mean, it must be a pretty incredible process then, given the amount of pictures, the amount of nominations <laughs> you get. Correct. That's right. It's a little difficult because we are now the largest human rights photo contest in the world. So we get tens of thousands of entrants at last count. I think 183 countries were submitting. So we've got you know a team of people that goes through and initially vets photographs. We've got an esteemed jury that goes through the final waves to get down to the winner, the top 10 finalists, and then the top 20 uh, honorable mentions. And can you tell me at all about the criteria that goes into this? What do you look for in those pictures? We're looking for compelling content. We're looking for composition. And we're also looking for the drama, how the individual story is being told. So, you know, this isn't a contest to just take pictures of nature. It's really people in human rights circumstances. So we're really looking to tell their story. We give the judges a whole list of criteria that they've got to evaluate, and they do a great job every year. I think one thing that strikes me walking around the pictures for this year, the finalists and the honorable mentions, is... I guess it's a mix in terms of how you tell that story. Some are more close-ups, are very human pictures of individuals. Others, especially as this year is about climate justice, are literally a bird's eye view of what's happening. Talk maybe a little about that in terms of... Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's interesting, right? So you, you will have close-ups, but we also consider photographs that are taken with drones and, you know, there's a flood and there's somebody in the, in the middle of the flood taking a picture of somebody else in the flood. So we don't really want to put any guardrails on that. We want people just to come forward with the most compelling imagery they can. As in any art, you know, what evokes those types of emotions, it's all of those different types of elements. So the range of photographs we have is just pretty immense. And tell me about the photographers themselves a little more. As you said, this is a mix of amateur and professional photographers that submit images. What kind of mix is there? Is it more amateur than well, professional? Is, yeah, that's right. So it is more amateur because it's so accessible, right? Because most of these competitions are for professionals. And so the very nature of photography for humanity, and I should say our global partner is UN Human Rights, really gets amateur photographers excited. And it's not so much that they're looking to you know, win a photo competition. These are people that are swept up in extraordinary circumstances on their own with their compatriots in countries that are being ravaged by fire, flood. And so they're just taking pictures of their lives, but they're taking compelling images. So I would say 85% are from amateurs. And tell me also about the themes. As we say, this year, the theme was climate justice. How do you go about deciding those themes? What other themes have you had in past yeah. years? So from day one, it's always been about human rights because our partner is United Nations Human Rights. <laughs> so it's always going to be the theme. But this year we partnered with the Right Here, Right Now Global Climate Alliance and we thought we need to start telling these individual stories of individuals swept up in climate change because the ethos of the Right Here, Right Now Global Climate Alliance is that we're reframing climate change as a human rights crisis that it is because women 
children, people of color, the poor, the marginalized, will continue to suffer the most as the climate catastrophe escalates. So we need to tell those individual stories and they're human rights stories. So for the next few years, we're gonna train our lens on issues around climate justice. It's a particularly interesting choice, I guess, because climate change itself is a quite opaque concept. It's something that happens very slowly, obviously, but these are pictures that are really trying to get at, at the heart of the consequences. Well, you bring up an interesting point. Climate change happens very slowly unless you get hit by a tsunami or a flood or your house burns down. But the process that creates these sudden events, to your point, is very slow. But we're starting to see the effects in dramatic fashion now. So that's why most everybody on the planet now, they're understanding that climate change has been around for a while. So it's really important at this stage to show the images of the individual people that are suffering. And tell me your impression of the winning photograph for this one. It is a picture taken in India of a house eroding and, and the family sort of watching that house erode. What kind of feelings did it evoke in you? Well, I think you just said it, right? That climate change is a very gradual process until the moment it's not. And so the winning image that Masood Sarwar took is of an 80-year-old man sitting next to his home that is now sliding into the Ganges River a week after his wife died of a heart attack. Tragedy upon tragedy, this man has just resigned. It appears in the photograph. So it's a black and white photograph, and with the shadows and with the content, it's just really a haunting image, a foreboding image of what could happen to everybody. This exhibition is going to be here at the UN. We're here at the UN General Assembly's Visitor Center for about a month, I believe. Correct. For people who do come here, what would you like to be their lasting impression of what they see? I think it's really to walk a mile in the shoes of the people they see. Not just look at the photographs in a detached fashion, just take a moment and imagine if they will, what if that was your father, your mother, your sister, your son, your daughter, your grandmother? How would that change the way that you view this photograph? I would like for them to walk away understanding that climate change, is a human rights crisis that it impacts the most vulnerable among us. That was David Clark speaking to Monocle's Chris Chermak. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Laura Kramer, Marcus Hippie and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher, Lillian Fawcett, and our studio manager, Christy O'Grady. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and a couple of literary treats too. I spoke to Emily Rhodes about her walking book club. She gathers her group of bibliophiles and they take a stroll on Hampstead Heath and discuss their reading. Also, you can hear my conversation with Paul Feig. He directed the film Bridesmaids. He came into the studio. We had a wonderful conversation about his early life. He was brought up a, Chris, a strict Christian scientist, but of course he's then gone on to drink and make cocktails and write about them. The book's not just cocktail recipes by him, also people like Kylie Minogue have contributed, and there's loads of Hollywood gossip. That's coming up a little bit later, as is The Briefing, live at midday in London. The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening.